It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. An experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be finding out about a mighty magnet and hearing about aerosols' effects in the atmosphere. I'm Benjamin Thompson, and I'm Nick Howe. Listeners, for our first story today, I want to talk about magnets. But not the ones you might have attached to your fridge at home. Oh no, I want to talk about some monstrously powerful magnets. For many years, researchers have been creating stronger and stronger magnetic fields for use in things like MRI scanners, particle accelerators and nuclear fusion experiments. This week in Nature, a team have beaten the current world record for a particular type of magnet using techniques that could usher in a route to even stronger magnets being made in the future. Now, magnetic fields are measured in units called teslas. A fridge magnet has a strength of maybe a few millitesla, but this new one can produce a field tens of thousands of times stronger at 45.5 tesla. To get an idea of how the team managed it, let's find out a bit about the magnets involved. And these are electromagnets, ones that require power and can be switched on and off. Now, broadly speaking, these fit into two categories, as Damien Hampshire, who researches powerful magnets at Durham University here in the UK, explains. One is we can make magnets in the way that we did traditionally for electrical applications like transformers, where you take a, a wire generally a copper wire, and you wind it into a coil and then you can just drive a current through the copper wire and produce the large magnetic field that way. The problem with that is that once you get above a few Tesla, you have to have very large power supplies. If you look at the high field labs around the world that use that sort of approach, they're putting megawatts, tens of megawatts into these magnets to drive them. When you put a large amount of power into these so-called resistive magnets, they get hot. And without proper cooling, they could melt. The other category of electromagnet also requires cooling, but for rather different reasons. Now, the second technology is to use superconducting materials. The advantage that superconducting materials have is they have no resistance. So now you don't need a large power supply. You can basically use a sophisticated car battery to drive the current through this very low-resistance superconducting material. 
The drawback is that you have to cool things down. You have to cool the magnet down to low temperatures in order for it to go into the superconducting state and achieve this zero resistance. For superconductors to work properly, they need to be mighty cold. And the coils in these magnets are often cooled using liquid helium to only a few Kelvin above absolute zero. As superconducting materials have no electrical resistance, none of the power fed into these magnets is lost to heat, which makes them more efficient. However, you can only push them so far, as at high magnetic fields, the coils within these magnets can lose their superconductivity. So there are two types of electromagnet, and they have their strengths and their weaknesses. They're both capable of making really strong magnetic fields, but putting one type inside the other to make a hybrid magnet combines their fields, giving the strongest outputs. Until now, the strongest direct current, or DC magnetic field in the world, was created by a hybrid found at the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory at Florida State University in Tallahassee in the US. It's a big old thing, says David Labalestier, who works at the lab. If you went to see the hybrid magnet, what you would see is a huge physical plant that is many meters in diameter and many meters high. And it's a very large superconducting magnet, about two meters outside diameter and about two meters high. And inside this is a small resistive magnet. And that magnet has been very reliable. It's been operating since uh, 2000 and it has scientists from all over the world using it. The combined output of this superconducting resistive hybrid magnet is a magnetic field of 45 tesla, which for a few decades has been the record. But now David and his colleagues have made a hybrid that tops it, producing 45.5 tesla, a new world record for a direct current magnetic field. Central to this achievement is the makeup of the superconducting magnet, which in this case is found on the inside rather than the outside of the hybrid. Instead of using traditional low-temperature superconducting material to make the magnet's coils, the team used an incredibly thin tape containing a high-temperature superconducting material wrapped many, many times around the magnet's core. These high-temperature superconductors still require temperatures way below zero degrees Celsius to work, but David and his team have been cooling them a lot more than that. So the advantage of a high-temperature superconductor is actually not that we're using it at high temperatures. We're using it at exactly the same temperature as we use a low-temperature superconductor. But the meaning is that actually it has a much more robust superconductivity in it, and this superconductivity exists to much, much higher fields. So we can generate here twice the magnetic field that is possible with any low-temperature superconductor. Using this setup means the new hybrid magnet is more compact, it's more energy efficient, and the researchers are able to pump more current through the superconducting section. I mean, it's like a car, right? I mean, the more power you can have in the engine, the more torque you can add to the wheels, the faster it will go. And it's exactly the same thing here. The more current you can put into the windings, the higher the magnetic field. It's just directly proportional. So there's a new champion in the field of magnetic fields. Damien Hampshire, who you heard from earlier, and who wasn't part of the study, is impressed with what's been achieved. Well, of course, this is an important step forward in the field because they have achieved, as far as I can see, the highest DC field yet. So that is, you know, a fabulous piece of work. So they should be applauded. But, I mean, as they mentioned in the paper, this is not a route yet for um, commercial 
ultra high field magnets because the magnet itself is largely damaged at the end of the um, experiment. But this is the nature of research and this is the nature of development in this field. Setting a world record took its toll on the setup. The coils of the superconducting magnet were damaged in places by the stresses caused by the high magnetic field. David suggests that tiny defects in the superconducting tape were the cause of this, but he's confident that this is something that can be overcome in the future. On the face of it, moving from 45 to 45.5 Teslas might not seem like a big leap. But David explained to me that this really is a proof-of-principle test, not designed for a particular application, and really it's about paving the way for even more powerful magnets to be made in the future. In raw numbers, it isn't a huge leap, but it's a huge leap because the technology used to develop it opens the route towards 60 Tesla, even higher. The limits now are not in the superconductor. The limits are in managing the genie in the bottle. And the genie in the bottle is the stored magnetic energy, which is very, very large. That was David Labellestier from the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory at Florida State University in the US. You can read his paper over at nature.com. You also heard from Damien Hampshire from Durham University in the UK. Later in the show, we'll be hearing about another researcher wanting to use CRISPR to edit human embryos. That's coming up in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Anna Nagel. Monkeys may not have a brain for music, according to new research from the US. By scanning the brains of humans and macaques while they were listening to sounds, scientists were able to show that human brains had a strong response to harmony and pitch, key components of music and speech. Macaques don't tend to spend much time listening to Jay-Z on a lazy Sunday afternoon, though, so the researchers wondered whether music just wasn't relevant to monkeys. To check this, the researchers did the same experiment, but this time with macaque noises. Even then, when harmonic sounds were present, human brains showed a stronger response than the macaques. The authors believe that these differences are due to the importance of speech and music to humans. Harmonise with that research over at Nature Neuroscience. I just want to say one word to you. Plastics. Today, plastics are truly everywhere. Recently, there's been research into microplastics, tiny specks of plastic, and their effects on marine life. It may not only be the residents of Neptune's kingdom that are exposed to these puny plastic particles, though. Humans may be, too. By taking data from 26 studies and looking at around 15% of Americans' food intake, scientists from Canada were able to estimate that humans take in between 74,000 and 121,000 microplastic particles a year. People could also be exposed to an additional 90,000 particles a year if they only drink water from plastic bottles rather than from the tap. At the moment, it's unclear what the health effects might be of microplastics on humans, but the researchers suggest that plastics are pervasive. Find that study over at Environmental Science and Technology.
Next up, I've been looking into how aerosols affect the climate. Well, hang on a minute. Don't we already know that? Aerosols are bad for the climate, aren't they? Oh, well, that's the thing. We don't really know. There's a lot of uncertainty about... Hang on. Are you thinking of aerosol sprays, like the ones for your armpits? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I only use roll-ons, right? Smelling good without the guilt. Right. Well, that's actually a common misconception. Back in the 80s and 90s, when the hole in the ozone layer was all over the news, there were spray cans that released chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, into the air, which caused damage to the ozone layer. Damage to the ozone layer is also not really about climate change, which is what we're talking about here. Anyway, the media often refer to those spray cans as aerosols, but that's not typically what scientists mean when they use the word. Ah, I see. So what do scientists mean when they say aerosols? Well, that's a good question, and it's the first thing I asked Joyce Penner, a climate scientist from the University of Michigan, who's written a comment in this week's Nature about aerosols' unclear effects on the climate. We're talking about just particles, very small particles, usually less than a micron, you know, like the dust in the air that you see. So what are some types of aerosols and where are they coming from? So the aerosols come from a variety of sources. When you're burning coal, coal has sulfur embedded in it, and that's released into the atmosphere as SO2, which goes through some chemical reactions to form sulfate, which condenses as an aerosol. But dust is just blown by wind action into the atmosphere. Soot is any kind of burning, produces some amount of soot. And sea salt is also a source that is put into the atmosphere by winds. So what is our current understanding of how aerosols affect the climate? Well, we think in in general they cool. So they are actually hiding the effects of CO2 and the other greenhouse gases by being present in the atmosphere. Aerosol particles themselves can scatter solar radiation. So instead of absorbing that radiation at the surface of the Earth and warming the Earth, it's scattered out. And the other way is they act as seeds for cloud drops and ice particles. And when they do that, at least in warm clouds, they tend to make more cloud particles, and that allows the cloud to be more reflective of sunlight as well. But the extent to which they do that is not very well known. So what are the challenges in trying to understand that? Well, particularly for the cloud issue, one of the things that has been difficult to pin down was whether changes to the clouds are occurring because of the aerosols or just because of meteorology. So, you know, the clouds are changing day by day. And is that what we see when we go out and look at experiments? Or is it actually the aerosols? What is the cost to not knowing? What is the cost to not understanding aerosols properly? Right now, we have projections, if we keep burning fossil fuels as we have been, that by 2100, the Earth may warm, but the range of warming is quite large. So that range, I think, could be narrowed if we knew the aerosol forcing uh, much better. 
So what are the things we need to do in order to better understand aerosols? We need to establish what the aerosol properties are. And because aerosols have a fairly short lifetime, like five to ten days in the atmosphere, that means that in different source regions, their properties are different. So you'll see mainly dust aerosols coming off of the Sahara and maybe organics and sulfates coming off of China and areas like that. And we need to know what the properties of these aerosols are in terms of their mixing. And that means we have to get out there with airplanes to determine those properties, as well as the size of the aerosol, which determines how much reflection of solar radiation takes place. If I was to give you an infinite amount of money to better understand how aerosols are affecting climate change, what would you spend it on? I think the biggest part of the uncertainty has to do with the way that aerosols affect clouds. So if we can get the community to use particular meteorological conditions to study in observations how clouds respond to aerosols and then make sure that the models can reproduce that behavior. That would be a big step forward. Is there a degree to which there always will be some uncertainty about aerosols' impact on the climate? I hope not. I'm very certain that if we can beat down the uncertainties, then we can also beat down uncertainties in how the climate is going to change in the future. But I think what it will take to do that is a concerted effort by the community at large. That was Joyce Penner from the University of Michigan in the US. You can check out the comment article she wrote, Unpacking Some of the Uncertainties About Aerosols, over at nature.com slash opinion. Finally then, as always on the show, it's time for the news chat. And joining me here in the studio is Davide Castelvecchi, senior reporter here at Nature. Davide, hi. Hey, Ben. For our first story today, Davide, we're going to be talking about x-rays, but maybe not in a, in a hospital context. No, this is astrophysics. It's high-energy photons from space, and it's a new space observatory which we'll launch later this month. Right, well, who's making this observatory then, Davide? It's a joint Russian and German mission, and it will carry actually two separate instruments, both of which are X-ray telescopes. And they will uh, look at the same part of the sky at the same time, and they will scan the sky continuously for four years to produce a full sky map at these very high energy X-rays. So why then do we want an X-ray map of the sky? What can it tell us that just a regular sort of observatory, a regular telescope can't? It's just like when you use filters on your camera and you can see the world in different ways, you know, different colors. X-rays are produced by different phenomena than visible light and different wavelengths within the general category of X-rays can give us this different information. So, for example, plasma, which is, you know, the interstellar matter that is very feeble, very thin, but is present almost everywhere, you would think it's invisible, it's transparent, but it glows in X-ray wavelengths. So it'll be telling us stuff then about the universe that we didn't know before? Yes. Well, the main goal of this mission is to do a map of galaxy clusters. So these are the largest structures we know in the universe. They can be made by thousands of galaxies. 
And sometimes we can't even see the individual galaxies, but these instruments will see the glow of the intergalactic gas from these clusters. Right. And, uh, and, well, something you and I have talked about before, David, is dark matter. Yeah. And, uh, and is, is this observatory designed to maybe hunt this kind of uh, mysterious stuff that's out there in the universe? So it will trace the effects of dark matter on the formation of these gigantic structures. And also there is a hope that it might see more directly the decay of dark matter, kind of like radioactive matter decays. Perhaps particles of dark matter also decay and give off X-rays. Well, on this one, then, David, I mean, I understand that this mission has been, you know, quite a long time in the making. The roots of this mission stretch back to the 1980s under Gorbachev's rule. And there were different proposals at the time. And then the Soviet Union collapsed and the, the Russian economy went down with it. And for a long time, the Russian space program and Russian science were troubled also by brain drain and so on. So especially the Russian side of the collaboration hopes that this will represent kind of a comeback specifically for astrophysics. Well, last one on this one, Davide. So the launch of this is next week. How excited are the researchers behind it? For Rashid Sunyaev, one of the Russian astrophysicists I interviewed, it's an especially significant mission because he's rather old and he has been dreaming of such a mission since the 1980s. When I was interviewing him, he kept knocking on wood Uh, saying, you know, if all goes well, we will do this and that. There's always risks in any launch, in any space mission. Things could go wrong and you could lose the the spacecraft. So there was a feeling that there was a lot at stake. Well, Davide, let's stay in Russia for our next story. And it's a story that we've covered a bunch on the news chat, but it just seems to have so many twists and turns. And this is the story uh, which began in November last year about the CRISPR editing of two baby girls in China. But as I say, we're in Russia now. Uh, what's, what's going on here? We have revelations that a molecular biologist in Moscow called Denis Rebrikov is planning to do something similar to what was done in China by He Zhangkui, the the story that you mentioned uh, from last year, which, of course, rose huge controversy. So Nature had the exclusive on this one, that Rebrikov is considering implanted gene-edited embryos into women. Davide, why does he want to do this? So Rebrikov, his goal is the same, to prevent the transmission of HIV from parents to child. Now, in the case of He Zhangkui, it was an attempt to prevent transmission from the father, And here, instead, it would be to prevent uh, um, HIV-positive mothers from from, uh, passing on the virus to the children. And and how is Rebrikov planning to do this then? He wants to target the same gene. It's a gene called CCR5, which controls a protein which may or may not prevent HIV viruses from entering human cells. Now, the technique he wants to use is CRISPR, which, of course, has become hugely successful and powerful in all of biology, but it has yet to be proven to be safe in humans. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we had a story in the news chat about China potentially changing their laws in response to what happened in back in November. And there's been calls across the world for a sort of moratorium on this. Is Rebrikov able to do this in Russia? What's the sort of legal framework? Is this something he's able to just go ahead and, and, and work on? It seems that there is a gray area legally. So it's unclear whether uh, what he wants to do is legal uh, according to current Russian law. He is applying for permits to carry on his experiments. And so uh, we'll see what happens. Well, ethicists and biologists had a lot of opinions on the last time this was attempted, and none of them were positive as far as I'm aware. What are people saying this time about this potential sort of second go? The issues are 
always the same. It's unclear whether this will be effective. It's unclear whether it's needed. And there's also potential side effects. Uh, Rabikov claims that he can avoid them, but there's always, whenever you use this kind of technique, which is based on enzymes editing DNA, there's always a risk of uh, mutations happening in unintended parts of the genome where you could have consequences that uh, you can't predict. At least Rebrikov has announced ahead of time that he's thinking about doing this, I suppose, which is more than the world got last time. Um, Has he given any idea of what his plans actually are? He's hoping to start within a few months, but it also depends on how fast he will be able to get the permits from the, the Russian authorities. Or if he gets them at all, uh, Davide definitely one for us to keep a close eye on here. Listeners, for more on both of these stories, head over to nature.com slash news. That's all we've got for this week. There's just time to let you know that we're now on Spotify. So if that's your go-to destination for podcasts, you can find this and all our previous episodes over there. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.